Hello, I want to welcome you to the Point Church Alberta Campus Sunday Preaching Podcast. My name is Josh Heisler and I'm the Alberta Campus Pastor. We strongly believe in the expositional preaching of God's Word, which works to build our faith and grow us up in Christ. Our prayer is that this message will be a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join us as we get to the point. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you open them up to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of the hardback black Bibles from under your chair. And if you're using one of those, uh, you'll want to turn to page 995. Today, we're going to continue in our new series in the book of 2 Timothy, which we've entitled, It's Getting Real. Last week, as we began this series, I told you that as we read this book, if we want to get everything out of this book that we can, then we have got to keep the context behind the book in mind at all times. Paul is in prison. He is about to die. He's looking at death in the face. And as he's writing there, sitting there, looking at death in the face, he's writing this letter to Timothy to encourage him, to empower him, to live on mission for Jesus. The cost of following Jesus was getting real for Paul. It was getting real for Timothy. And if we can just be perfectly honest, as we look at our situation today, as we look around the world at us, it's getting real for us as well. Being a Christian today is not going to be what it was like when we were growing up. It's going to come with a cost. And while at least for most of us, that may not mean our life like it did for Paul, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Following Jesus is going to require sacrifice. We're going to need help. We're going to need encouragement. And in his goodness, God has preserved this letter for 2,000 years in order to encourage and empower us to live in this situation that we're in. So last week, as we began chapter one, we saw that Paul had a genuine hope that was grounded in the promise of the life that is in Jesus Christ. That matters. We saw that Paul has hope as he's looking at death in the face. And as we talked about that, what we saw was that when we place our hope in Christ, we're able to live on mission for Jesus. You see, Paul was was facing the one thing that this whole world tells us we should fear the most. Paul was facing death, but because he knew that, that his hope wasn't in this life, that his hope was in Jesus, he was able to, to go forward with boldness. He was able to go forward and live on mission because the gospel message teaches us that Jesus has defeated death. And when we understand that, when we get that to our core, that our hope isn't in this life, that our hope isn't in things, we'll be able to live on mission too. And so we saw that we we want to live on mission in the face of trials and difficulties, but we also saw that we want to cultivate hearts of thanksgiving. We want to have hearts that are thankful. We can find joy in the midst of suffering. We can find joy in the midst of difficulties when we are thankful for all that God has done. When we remember God's grace, when we remember his faithfulness, we can have joy. So we want to cultivate thanksgiving in our hearts. And then finally, last week, we encountered the first command in this letter. And that command was to fan into flame the gift of God that was within you. That is a command to be bold. That's a command to not shrink back. That's a command to not lose heart. 
And the reason that we can obey that command was right there in last week's text because God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. When we become followers of Jesus, God gives us his spirit and his spirit fills us with his power, with his love, with his self-control. That's what we saw last week. But as we continue on in the rest of the chapter today, we're going to encounter a few more implications of this truth that that God is with us and that he fills us as we serve him. So let's dive in. 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 8 and we're going to take it to the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Paul says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished debt, death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what until that day, what has been entrusted to me, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy spirit who dwells within us, Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, as we dive into this text and we look at the commands that we find here, Lord, I ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive and understand what it is we need today. Get me out of the way and and speak to every single person in this room Help us to scorn the shame that this world tries to throw at us and to walk faithfully as your disciples on mission for you. Fill us with a power that makes no sense that that we'll be able to live for you every single day. Enable us to live in community with one another. Take away any of the roadblocks that we might want to put up that keep us from living together, to follow you together. God, work on us today. As always, God, we ask that if there's somebody here today that that doesn't know you, that doesn't love you, we ask that today would be the day where they would repent of their sin and find the freedom and joy that is available in you, that they would walk into life unashamed, boldly on mission for you as, as a new disciple. Do this work that only you can do, God. We're dependent on you. We need your help in this. And so we're going to ask expectantly, knowing that you are able. We love you, Lord. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. As we look at this text and we look at the commands of this text, it's good for us to keep in mind that shame is a powerful emotion. It is a powerful emotion. It can be crippling. It can control our whole life. 
It's so powerful that there are entire societies that operate on honor and shame. They're built around it. In fact, 65% of the the population of the earth today lives in an honor-shame society. An honor-shame society is one where the moral values of honor and shame are used to motivate and regulate behavior. The primary motivation in all social situations is to avoid disgrace and maintain honor. Entire societies exist within that framework. Shame is a powerful emotion. But as we look at this text today, as we continue in this letter, Paul wants us to see that for the Christian, there is no room for shame. In fact, he begins with dual commands that are telling us just that. Look at what he says right there. Starting at verse 8, he says, therefore. Now, really quick, whenever we encounter that word therefore here in the text, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to look back and we ask that silly question, what's the therefore, therefore? I know it's, it's crazy, but it actually helps us because therefore right here in verse eight is pointing us back to what we read last week. Therefore is pointing us back to verse seven where Paul says, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, because God gave us a spirit of power and love and self-control, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. The command comes right out of that. Paul is telling Timothy, he's telling us, do not be ashamed of the gospel and don't be ashamed of those who proclaim the gospel. On a very practical level, it makes sense that there would be this temptation to feel some shame. I mean, after all, Paul's in prison because of the gospel. And a lot of people hear the gospel message and they think it's craziness. Like we see that in the New Testament. In 1 first, in first Corinthians, we get the picture that there were some Jews who, who thought that this idea of the gospel of Jesus was not very smart. They, they thought that this idea of a resurrected Messiah was craziness. There were non-Jews in that situation there who, who thought it was nonsense which is why Paul's able to write in his letter to the first Corinthians that the gospel message is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. There are people all over the world that are going to hear the gospel message and they're going to think it's nonsense. And it's entirely likely that Timothy had encountered a similar situation there in Ephesus. We don't know that for certain. It's an educated guess. But what I can tell you for certain is that we will encounter people who think that the gospel is nonsense. The the idea that Jesus was God incarnate, that he died and came back to life, to them, it will be insanity. And they might try to think less of you. They might try to belittle you. They might put you down. But what we're seeing here is that when we feel this temptation to be ashamed of the message we proclaim, the message in which we get our hope, the message that brings us joy, when we feel that temptation toward shame, Right here, Paul is telling us, do not be ashamed. But remember, I told you that Paul gives us a dual command right here in this text. So the first command is, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed that I'm in prison because of the gospel. That's the first command, but then he continues on and he gives us a second command. And and really what we see going on here is something Paul does a lot where he gives us a negative command followed by a positive command. 
One command is do not do this. The other command is do this. Don't do this, do this. That's what he's saying here. So so the second command here, which has the same goal as the first, is there in the second half of verse eight. Paul says, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. That's the do. Do not be ashamed of the gospel, but do share in suffering for the gospel. They have the same goal. Do you realize, though, how countercultural these commands are? Paul is telling us choose pain, choose hardship, join me in suffering for the gospel. On the surface, that makes absolutely no sense. It it doesn't, but what Paul is showing us here is that while there may be adverse reactions to the gospel message, while they may bring social disgrace, while they may bring us scorn, while they may bring hardship and trials, that is no cause for shame. Don't be embarrassed about the gospel. Don't be embarrassed about Jesus. Rather, embrace that hardship. Embrace that suffering. That makes no sense. Why would we do that? Why would we choose to suffer? The answer is that in hardship, we're able to show people where our hope really lies. As we suffer, we're able to demonstrate the power and truth of the gospel at work to a watching world. Because our hope doesn't lie in this life. Our hope rests in the promise of the life that is in Jesus Christ. That's what we saw last week. If we respond to the adverse reactions that may come to the gospel message with shame, what happens? What do we do? We stop sharing the gospel. We stop living the gospel. We stop being the obedient disciples that Jesus has called us to be. We get off mission. But these negative reactions, they they really shouldn't surprise us. When people don't like to hear the gospel message from us, when they don't like us because of the message we share, that shouldn't surprise us at all. Jesus told us that it was going to happen. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciples to be like his teacher and a servant like his master, If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus is telling us right there in Matthew chapter 10 that there are going to be times where our gospel message, where our following of Jesus is not going to be met with love and kindness. It's not going to be met with welcome. Sometimes they're going to treat us with scorn. Sometimes they will reject us. And when that happens, don't embrace fear and let shame take hold. Embrace suffering and cling to Jesus. That's what he's telling us here. Demonstrate your love and trust in Christ, in the promise of the life that is in Christ, because I promise you, the world is watching. They will see how you respond to their attacks. But as you embrace that suffering, as you're moving forward, remember those five key words there at the end of verse eight. See, Paul doesn't just say, share in suffering for the gospel, period, does he? That's not what we see right there. 
He adds on those five words there. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. You see, we don't suffer for the gospel alone. We don't suffer on our own strength. We have the power of God. This is the power we saw last week. This is the power there at the end of verse seven that God gives us when he gives us his spirit. This is God's power, his love, his self-control. And that means that as we share in suffering, as we embrace this hardness, hard, hard times that come our way, we do it with God's strength. We do it with God's love. We do it with God's self-control leading us as we go. But how do we tap into that? How do we get a hold of this power that he's talking about right there? It's actually in the text. In verse eight, Paul says, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And then starting in verse nine, he says, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Now, I want to stop right there in the middle of that verse, because what we're seeing here is this long, run-on sentence. Paul loves to write these long, run-on sentences that just go on forever. I'm sure English teachers hate them, but, but he loves them. And, and as we're reading that, it might be a little easy to lose track of what he's saying, but if I could take that, that long sentence and summarize it down to just like 15 words, it would be that the power of God we get is obtained through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying right there. That's the 15-word summary of what that long run-on sentence was, but, but there is so much more right here in the text than just that. In verse 9, Paul says, He saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Do you understand what that means? What that's telling us right there? It, it means that God chose you. You didn't choose God. He chose you. And he chose you for his own purposes, in his own grace. You didn't impress God with your good works. You didn't impress. It wasn't like you were walking around doing good things and God's like, oh, look, man, he's, he stopped swearing 96% of the time. I think I'll save him now. No, he chose you. He saved you. It wasn't because of your works. It wasn't because of what you have done. You were chosen by God, and that's important. Because when we understand this, it will affect how we endure in suffering. You see, if we get this backward, it undermines our ability to suffer. You see, my salvation, it is not dependent on my choice, on my works, but on God's choice, on God's election. If it takes me being good enough, to earn salvation, if it takes my good works, my good deeds in order to earn righteousness before God, that also means that it's going to take my good works, my good deeds, my strength to endure when I encounter difficulties. But if it's dependent on God, you know what that means? When I remember that God saved me while I was his enemy, 
while I was in open rebellion against God, before I'd done anything to deserve it, he saved me. When I remember that, that he did that, that that means that, that nobody can separate me from God because he's got me. I'm not holding on to God. God's holding on to me, which means when I endure, when I'm suffering, he's there with me as I suffer. We're going to suffer with his strength. This matters. But he didn't just save us and call us out of nowhere. This wasn't a spur of the moment thing. This was the plan all along. That's what Paul's getting at in the second half of verse 9. When he says it was his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Jesus wasn't God's plan B. I think sometimes when we read our Bible, as we're reading through the Old Testament, we see how God gave the law to Israel and and they failed to keep the law and they just kept messing up and messing up. And so God starts looking around wondering like, what am I going to do now? They, I gave them the rules. They can't follow the rules. What, what, Jesus, hey, how you doing? Hey, you're going to go to earth and fix this problem. We, we think that Jesus was somehow God's plan B, but he wasn't. Look at, look at what the text says there. He says, Jesus was the plan from before the ages began. This is all one plan. He is the savior who was promised before the ages began. The very first time that men and women sinned against God, right there in Genesis chapter three, we read about God's plan for a savior. He was the savior that was promised. But as we continue on into verse 10, we see that this promise was kept. Paul says that God's purpose and grace now has been manifested through the appearing of our savior, Christ Jesus. God's own purpose and grace, which was promised before the ages began, has now been revealed and put on display in Jesus's life, death, burial, and resurrection. Paul's reminding us here that the promise has been kept. I don't know if you're like me. I like to write in my Bible. If you like to write in your Bible, if you're one of those people, you might, over in the margin next to verse 9, write, promise made. Jesus is the promise that was made before the ages began. And then right next to verse 10, you might add on, promise kept. Because in Jesus, God's purpose and grace was made manifest for the whole world to see. Because Jesus stepped down from heaven and came to earth, he put on flesh. He was like us in every way except without sin. He lived a perfect life, but he died a sinner's death in our place for us. He was buried in a borrowed tomb, but on the third day, he rose in victory over sin and death. And if we will repent of our sin, if we will place our faith and trust in his finished work, finished at the cross, he'll forgive us of our sin. He'll reconcile us to God. He'll give us his righteousness and we will spend eternity with him in heaven. He'll give us eternal life. The promise has been kept. And that promise is more than just a promise for the future. I think sometimes we start thinking that that's the promise for way out there. But the promise is for today as well. You see, the results of that promise being kept are hope and life. In the rest of verse 10, Paul tells us that. He says, our Savior Christ Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, through his finished work. 
That's where our hope comes from for today. It comes from the life and immortality. Life today, eternal life forever that we find through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's whole mission was to preach and teach that message and that that mission brought him into suffering. Paul's been telling Timothy, don't be ashamed, brother. Proclaim. Don't be afraid. Don't shrink back. Fan the flame. Let it grow. Continue to proclaim this message. Continue to share this good news that you have. Join me in suffering because I'm telling you, it's worth it. He tells them, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of me. I'm a teacher and a preacher of the gospel. And because of that, I'm in jail. Because of that, I'm facing death. I'm about to lose my life. He says that. And then look what he says right after that in verse 12. In the second half of verse 12, he says all of that. And then he says, but I am not ashamed For I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul is not ashamed. Now that's that's a coffee cup verse if I've ever read one, right? Like that's the kind of thing we want to walk around with. I am not ashamed. I know who I believe. But think about where Paul's at. He's in prison. He's about to die because of that savior, because of that gospel message. And he's saying, I'm not ashamed. And the reason he's not ashamed is because he knows Jesus personally. He has a personal relationship, a personal knowledge of who Jesus is. His faith, his trust, it's not a blind trust. It's not a blind faith. He knows who Jesus is. He knows what Jesus has done. He knows everything that Jesus has accomplished. And he's placing his faith and his trust in him. He's got like this deep down rock solid confidence that Jesus has made a promise and he will keep that promise, that he is faithful. Let that that shake you. Let that mold you. Let that lead you. Now, really quick, before we go much further, there there is one um, translation challenge we need to address right here in verse 12. I teach and and read, primarily study out of the English Standard Version, the ESV, but I know a lot of you use the NIV, the New International Version. It is an excellent translation. Uh, I would commend you to use either translation. They're great, but but there's a a difference in the translations here, and and if you read it, it, it might cause you to trip up as you see this. You see, if you're reading in the ESV, verse 12 ends by saying, I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. But if you read the NIV, it says, I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Now, that's a pretty noticeable difference. Am I right? Paul's saying in one that he's able to guard what's been given to me. And and in the other, he's saying uh, he's able to guard what I have given to him. Well, which one is it? What's going on here is in the Greek, the, the text essentially says he is able to guard my deposit until that day. And so the translation committees that have translated these two uh, English translations of the Bible, they they've had to interpret what does my deposit mean? Does my deposit mean that which I have given over to God? My life, my future, my hope, he's able to guard that. Or does my deposit mean that which God has deposited in me? 
the gospel message, the hope for the nations, the mission that he's given me to proclaim that message. Which one is it? As I've studied and and looked at the translation options here, as I've looked through all of this and I've worked on it, I have become just completely convinced that the answer is both. The answer is, is yes and right here. What what Paul is expressing here is his utter confidence in God. That God, in spite of his suffering, in spite of persecution, in spite of the fact that from a worldly perspective, it looks like everything has gone wrong, everything's gone sideways, the mission's over. Paul knows, in spite of all of that, that God is faithful, that God is able to do it, the mission's going to continue, his future is secure, there's nothing to worry about. He's got confidence in God right here. That's what he's telling us. And when we get this, we can have confidence too. He's able to guard it. We can actually embrace suffering when we get this. And we can do it without shame. Because God is faithful. Paul is not ashamed. He's commanding Timothy to not be ashamed. So the question we have to ask as we look at all of this is, is, am I ashamed of the gospel? Think about that. Am I ashamed of the gospel? Am I willing to go public with my faith? Or am I too afraid of what people might think? Am I too afraid of that losing this friendship that's important to me? Am I ashamed of the gospel? Or, or maybe we could word the question another way. Do, do I love Jesus enough to talk about him with others? Or am I ashamed to call him my Lord? Think about that. Stew on that. Don't decide right now. Think about these questions. Answer them honestly because there's a truth here that we need to understand. Like like deep in our core, we need to understand that you will talk about what you love. You absolutely will. Husbands in the room. You remember when you first met your wife and you drove everybody around you nuts talking about her? Why? Because you love your wife. Ladies, same thing for you when you met your husband. Hopefully still, you talk about them because you love them. Do you love your house? You're going to talk about your house. Do you have a hobby that you love? Whether it's football or carpentry, needlepoint, restoring cars, sewing, baking, whatever it is. If you have a hobby that you love, you're you're going to talk about that. And, And I can totally prove this to you because what do I talk about all the time? I talk about my goats, right? Like you're laughing because it's true. And, and I know what you guys think behind my back. Like, like I know that you guys think I'm crazy. I, I know that you, you're like, what's wrong with this dude? I, I get that. But here's the thing. That's my hobby. We have this small herd. If you don't know, now you do. I have this small herd of registered Nigerian dwarf dairy goats. And, and that's my hobby. And I love raising them. I love everything about it. Like, like we got to go out every single morning, first thing in the morning, grab a cup of coffee, and then we head out. We got to feed them. We got to milk the goats. We, we have to clean the barn. I don't even like getting help cleaning the barn. Like, I, I enjoy doing it. I'll, like, throw a podcast in and listen. It annoys me when people come help me. I, I like doing it. And, and I'll take it to the next level. My, 
it's breeding season, right? They're dairy goats. We got to get milk. There's a way you do that by breeding them. And, and breeding season means you have to spend extra time around the bucks. And bucks, if you didn't know this, they go into rut, which means they smell really, really bad. Like, like not an exaggeration. So bad that if I make Katie go out by the bucks, she will physically gag. It's disgusting. They smell terrible. Like you can smell them from the front porch and their barn is like a couple hundred feet from the front porch. Like they smell bad, but it doesn't bother me because it's my hobby. I love doing it. I just, I go right into the barn. Doesn't bother me one bit. You will talk about what you love. So the question is, do you love Jesus enough to talk about him? Or are you ashamed Paul's telling us here, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Talk about Jesus. Talk about him. Share him with him, others. Instead of being ashamed, we need to embrace that suffering that's going to come our way. And we're going to walk with Christ as we do. And as we walk with Christ, we're going to follow Jesus, but we're going to follow him with his power, not our own. We're not going to do it by our own strength. We're going to use his power. That's what Paul's telling us there in verses 13 and 14. Take a look. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now, there are two different commands in these two verses right here. And each command comes with a modifier. The first command is right there at the beginning of verse 13. Follow the the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. And the second command is at the end of verse 14. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Those are the two commands, but I want you to notice the modifiers right there that tell us how we're going to obey these commands. The first modifier is in the second half of verse 13. In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Do you know what that means? That means that as we follow this pattern of sound words, this instruction that Paul has given us, this design that he's given us to be obedient disciples who are not ashamed, who live on mission, we're going to do that with Jesus's power. Our faith in Jesus, our love for Jesus, they are what guide us as we obey this command, as we follow this pattern. They're what enable us to actually do it. We don't follow blindly. We don't follow on our own. It's our union with Christ that leads us to obey. It's our union with Christ that is going to give us the strength we need. And it's the same thing in the second command. There the modifier comes at the beginning of verse 14. He says, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, you're going to guard the good deposit that's entrusted to you. You're going to guard the good deposit. You're going to guard all of this gospel message you've received that you're living out, and you're going to do it with the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. This means we're going to be reliant on the Holy Spirit's power to guard that message. The whole idea here is that as we're following Jesus, we're using his power, his strength, not our own. Last week, we saw that we've been filled by the Holy Spirit with a spirit of power and love and self-control. And we're given that spirit in order to be active disciples. We don't try to do this by our own strength. 
We don't try to do it by like white knuckle discipline where we just try and hold on as tight as we can. We don't try to do it by force of will. Because if we try to do it by force of will, we will ultimately fail. We might have success for a little while, but eventually we're going to fall flat on our face. So what he's telling us here is to follow Jesus and use his power to do it. Follow Jesus with his power, not your own. And so as we see this, we might want to ask the question, am I following Jesus with my power or with his? Whose strength am I using to do this every day? Am I trying to do it by my own force of will? Or am I leaning into him and saying, help me? Lead me, guide me, walk with me. Let me do this with your strength. So often we try to just do it on our own. So often we try to do it by just white knuckle discipline. We, we try to reduce being a disciple of Jesus down to a list. Rules we have to follow. Things we do or, or don't do. And we think all I got to do is just keep the list, keep checking it off day in, day out, and I'm going to be okay. But here's the problem. Like I said a minute ago, if we try and follow that list, if we try to follow that rules by our own strength, eventually we're going to fail. We're going to fall flat on our face. And when that happens, where are we? What are we left with? Shame. We're ashamed of the gospel message because it wasn't strong enough to save us the way we thought it was. We're ashamed of ourselves because once again, I've done the same thing that I know I'm not supposed to do. I've got the list. All I got to do is check it off, but somehow I've done it again. And we end up with shame. If we're going to follow Jesus without shame, then we have got to use his power. We've got to use his strength. But we also need to remember that we're not alone in this. We're not following Jesus by ourselves. As this chapter closes out here, Paul makes this aside to Timothy that, that as we first read it, it, it might almost feel like that's not really for us. You know, this, the rest of this letter, it's pretty helpful, but, but that, that little chunk there was just for Timothy. And while that might be tempting... I want you to see that this is for us. There's truth in here for us. And, and really what we're seeing in verses 18, 15 through 18 is that we're meant to follow Christ together. We're going to follow Christ together. Take a look, verse, beginning at verse 15, he says, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesephorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service that he rendered at Ephesus. Now, these four verses right here, they are a very personal aside from Paul to Timothy. But, but there are two truths in here that, that we need to kind of wrestle with that will help us. And the first is 
kind of negative, but it's just reality. The first is that faithfulness to Christ may cost you some friends. Following Jesus might mean that some people walk away from you. that They don't want anything to do with you anymore. They think you're a crazy nut job to believe that this guy was God, that he died and came back to life. And so they walk away. But what we're seeing here is that that is nothing new. There are people who left Paul, the apostle, the guy who wrote like most of this New Testament right here. They walked away from Paul. Now, these two guys here, we don't actually know what happened. We, we actually don't know anything about the other, these three guys other than what's said here. We just know that Phygelus and Hermogenes, they, they abandoned Paul in his time of need. They, they ran away and they weren't the only ones. Others had, to the point where Paul uses hyperbole to say that everybody in Asia has abandoned me. Now, we know that it's hyperbole because he's about to start talking about Onesiphorus, right? But, but he's saying that they've abandoned me. They've left me alone. Following Christ is sometimes going to mean that, that we lose some friends. But following Christ is not something that we do by ourselves. And we know that because of the other truth we see in this letter. This other truth is that we follow Christ together. Now, we don't know anything about Onesiphorus. We don't know anything about him except what's here. Now, now there's some scholars who think maybe he's dead because Paul's blessing his household and not him personally. We don't know. But what we do see is that, that Paul is blessing this man's household because he had encouraged him. We, we see here that, that Paul needed other Christians to help him, to encourage him, to spur him along. Paul, the apostle, the guy who wrote most of our New Testament, Paul needed the help of other Christians to help him follow Jesus. And if Paul needed, our, needed help, what do you think that means for you and, or me? Like, I don't know about y'all, I ain't Paul. I'm not that smart. I'm not as holy as he is. I need help from other Christians. And so do you. If we're going to follow Christ, we need one another. This is not a solo sport. I'm going to keep on telling y'all that until you get it. We can't follow Jesus by ourselves. We need one another. We have got to be in community with one another, which is more than just this Sunday gathering. This Sunday gathering, it, it's a start, but it's not community. Community is deeper. Community means deep relationships. It means that we know one another, that we love one another, that we suffer with one another, that we encourage one another, that we confront sin in one another's lives, that we spur one another on to love and good works, to follow Jesus better, to love Jesus better. We have to have relationships with one another to do that. And that can start by getting into a connect group. If you're not in a connect group today, let me encourage you, get in one. We'll get one started here on campus if it's got to be on Sunday, but I'm, I personally would prefer you meet in somebody's home. And there's a reason behind that. It's not just space here at the church. Anybody ever experienced like the shield that goes up as you get out of the car at church? You know what I'm talking about? Like you can be fighting with your wife the whole drive here. And as soon as you park the car and you open that door, you got a smile on your face. You are blessed and highly favored. 
Like, I'm just the happiest Christian you ever met. Like, there's this shield that goes up at church. I don't know why, because none of us actually have it together. We're a mess. But, but we have this shield that goes up. And so I'll tell you, if, if, if you can only do Connect Group on Sunday mornings during the other service, we'll, we'll let you, we'll give you space, we'll encourage you. I'll tell you, yes, amen, go for it. But I'm telling you, if you can get into somebody's home, those shields start to fall. Like you come over to my house, you're going to see Josh doesn't have it all together. Our house is a mess because we live there. Like our house isn't perfect. All of a sudden, those shields go down and we start seeing one another for who we really are. Sinners in need of a savior. And when those shields go down, we're able to spend time talking with one another, encouraging one another. So get into a connect group. And, And by the way, connect groups do not have to be hard. Like the connect group we're in, we gather together every other Sunday. We eat food because we're Baptists. That's what we're supposed to do. We enjoy good food and we just talk. There's no homework. There's no like big, deep studying assignments beforehand. We just talk. We talk about our life. We talk about what we're going through, what's going on in our world. And and eventually, you know what happens as we talk? We start talk about being Christians. We start talk about what it means to be the church, how we're going to be the church going forward. We need one another to follow Jesus. We cannot do this by ourselves. So let me ask you this today. Are you in community? Or are you trying to follow Jesus all by yourself? Can't do it. You cannot do it. You need other Christians. You need other Christians to spur you on and encourage you. Over and over again, we see in the Bible that following Christ is something that we do together. So are you walking in community? Or are you walking by yourself? You want to give the devil a foothold? Walk by yourself. Try to follow Jesus by yourself. You'll fail. I I remember that myself in my own life. You cannot do it by yourself. You need other Christians. If you're not in community, by the way, if you're not in a group and like no shame, safe space, that's most y'all. Okay, we know how many groups we've got going in the church. If you're not in community, let me encourage you, come talk to me. Talk to one of our deacons. Talk to Nathan. We'll, we'll get you plugged with people. We'll set up a space if you need a space. But, but get in community with one another. The investment is worth it. I'm, I'm telling you, you can listen to me every Sunday, once a week, yell at you for 40 minutes. It's not going to help you nearly as much as spending an hour, maybe two, circled up in a, in a circle in, a, in somebody's living room just spending time with one another, encouraging one another, spurring one another on to love and good works. Don't try to follow Jesus by yourself. Get in community. Come talk to us. Back to this. Shame is a powerful emotion. It can be crippling. It can keep us silent. It can keep us from living on mission. Shame is a powerful emotion. 
and over the course of human history, it has been used to great effect. But if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, the, the command we're seeing here today is don't be ashamed. Follow Jesus with his power. Follow him faithfully and follow him with other disciples. I told you last week that following Jesus is not going to be what it once was in this world. It's just not. It's not going to mean what it used to mean. I'm not a pessimist. That's just reality. That's where we're living. So if you're not going to be serious about it, if you're not going to follow with, with genuine desire to know, love, and follow Jesus, there are cooler ways to spend your time. Go do that. You, being a Christian is not cool. It's just not. It used to be considered a social good. Now it, it's a liability at best. Don't believe me? Ask Jack Phillips out in Arizona, owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop. Talk to Baronelle Stutzman out in Washington State. She, she owns a florist shop. Being a Christian is going to come with a cost. There's going to be a lot of pressure to feel ashamed of the fact that you follow Jesus. It's going to be a lot of pressure to feel the shame of the gospel. It's only going to keep rising, but we cannot let that stop us from living on mission. If you're a Christian, Paul is telling us here, don't be ashamed. In this life, we need one another. More so today than yesterday, more so tomorrow than today. We need one another. And we need to rely on God's power to follow Jesus faithfully. But we don't have to walk in shame. So listen to me here. Listen to me. If you're a Christian, then Christ is in you. He's with you. He's given you his Holy Spirit. He's given you his power. Walk in faith. Walk in confidence. Do not be ashamed. There's no shame. That's what, that's what Paul's telling us right here. There's no shame. Thank you for listening to the preaching podcast from The Point Church. If you would like more information about our church, or if you have any questions, you can find us online at tothepoint.church.